is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, harvest is well and truly underway across the state and grain receivables are, as expected, well down on the record previous two years. We'll hear more about that shortly. And a cattle producer in the Northern Territory has survived a crocodile attack by literally biting back. He's been released out of hospitals with all his fingers and toes intact after a horrific incident. Started walking, took two steps, and the dirty bastard latched onto me. My right foot on the instep, sort of, as I threw a foot forward. And it was a big grab, solid, and... um, he shook me straight away, shook me like a rag doll, and he took off in the water about three metres. I kicked him in the ribs and leaning forward, just sort of half accidental, but my head with momentum went down towards his head, his head, and I managed to have a bite. And my teeth slipped up and I got all of the eyelids. And I jerked back on that and I had about a second go past and he let go. What an incredible story. He's safe, the cattle were safe, but uh, the crocodile, well, uh, the crocodile, he bit the crocodile and it let go. So we'll hear more about that uh, story a little bit later on in the program uh, from that cattle producer in the Northern Territory. But first up today, let's turn our attention to uh, grain because the harvest is well and truly underway across the state and grain receivals have uh, doubled in just the past week. Grain Corp has received over 1 million tonnes of grain this harvest, with half a million coming in the past week across New South Wales. Robert Spurway is the Managing Director and CEO of Grain Corp. He's just returned from China, travelling with the Prime Minister, and he told our reporter Ondine Slacksmith that he's uh, welcomed that better relationship between the big two trading partners. I think it's really important that the government is talking with the Chinese government. It supports the work that we're doing to build relationships between businesses uh, like ourselves in Australia and Chinese business. And really great to see that China has remained a really important customer for grain. Uh, But in particular with the removal of barley tariffs, that trade flow has started up again. And that means better barley for better beer in China. So that removal of barley tariffs, now that they've been removed, do you think they will return to the level that they were once at? We've already seen very strong demand with the first shipments leaving Australia uh, almost as soon as the tariffs were removed. Uh, So absolutely, we're very confident about that. I would add that we've seen strong demand from uh, Chinese buyers around wheat. Uh, So in many cases, they've found ways to offset the uses of the barley that was just too expensive under the previous tariff regime. Can you tell me what is the state of the current harvest? Harvest is starting to wind up very quickly. In New South Wales alone, we've received over a million tonnes this harvest. Half a million tonnes of that was just in the last week. As traditionally the harvest moves south across Australia, we'll see volume strengthen. We're looking at pretty strong crops in southern New South Wales and into Victoria. And Grain Corp set up for that. Uh, We've been working closely with growers. We've got our teams and equipment in place and we're looking forward to harvest continuing over the next number of weeks. What do the tonnages received this season like so far look like? We're pretty happy. It's close to what we'd expect on the forecasts that we've seen from ABARES. And in fact, in some areas, we're seeing slightly stronger than expected yields. 
in particular the quality is looking pretty good so it's been a tough year for growers particularly in the north of New South Wales where everyone knows it's been drier uh, but southern New South Wales central and southern New South Wales and indeed Victoria uh, is looking really good so we're optimistic that's going to be a strong harvest and in the weeks ahead. Overall as ABARES are predicting we expect at least an average crop in, in this harvest. Uh, Tom Courts and I'm the Dubbo North Area Manager, so cover from Dubbo through to Canamble. I think it's been pretty pretty good harvest, you know, obviously returned to a more average year, but it's been really exciting for, for Jason, who's the Dubbo West Area Manager, and myself. We're sort of, in the last week, we've gone over 500,000 tonnes for northern New South Wales, and 350 of that have been in, the, in central New South Wales in the two Dubbo clusters. You spoke of average then. Why would you say it has been average? I think it's just after the last three years sort of almost being unicorn years in being so large, the just back to a bit more of a normalised year has been slightly less rainfall and things performing you know, well above, above odds and yeah, back to just that more cyclical sort of average season. And those tonnages, how do they compare to last year? Uh, they're, they're a bit back, nothing, you know, nothing crazy. I think for us in, in, in Central we've sort of performed pretty well we've got some good tons in and and you know sort of bucked the trend a little bit so it's been really good and we're here today at your trangy site how are you going for staff at your grain sites are you looking to say employ more people uh we've been really lucky this year with with harvest uh staff we've we've had a really good really large amount of applicants for our, our harvest jobs especially across the the central west and the dubbo clusters there's been some really really good candidates so we obviously have our, our core staff who've, who've been here for the last few years and then during the harvest period we flex up and and we've yeah had some really outstanding sort of local people as well as some some people who are traveling throughout the country at the moment so yeah it's performed really well and last year there were huge challenges with logistics around flooding and shortages of contractors are there any challenges this year no, I think it's just been a slightly different year. Obviously, last year was was a sort of the, the perfect storm, so to say. We we had ridiculous amounts of rainfall in crop, and and it was all a bit of a bit of a challenge. But this year, it, it seems to have flown pretty well. We've uh, harvest is a lot earlier. We're probably about a month ahead of where we usually are, but that's been great. It's sort of presented us with opportunities to to get plenty of tons in and out the door and and yeah no we're, it's sort of been lucky obviously a few less contractors up north with the crop crop down south being you know an absolute bumper and you know still well 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 above average so yeah it's been it's been one of those years where it's sort of been challenge free so far and and it's all gone pretty well. Tom Courts is the Dubbo North Area Manager with Grain Corp and he was sending that report from Ondine Slack-Smith. It's uh, coming up to 12 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. New South Wales avocado growers are celebrating this week's news that the protocol for exporting the Australian Haas variety has been approved by India. It follows a successful trial run that saw avocados exported from Queensland Bundaberg region. And now, once accredited, growers from all regions of Australia will be able to export to India. ABC reporter Tina Quinn spoke with Jake Binney from Stewart's Point in, on the mid-north coast, and he ma- manages Avarama, the largest avocado packer in the state, and his family are the biggest producers of the fruit in New South Wales as well. He's very much welcoming the news. Yeah, it's going to be great for the avocado industry uh, and our growers, as well as us as a, the largest grower in New South Wales. Um, 
we've uh, got a lot of supply coming on over the next few years and um, uh, it's a big market uh, that we now have access to and uh, hopefully we can send a lot of avocados that way. We'll be looking at getting audited uh, on our farm as well as our packing shed so that uh, we can export into India. Um, it's a big market and avocado growers have been struggling the last couple of years with the increased supply and, and the lower prices so uh, it'll be a good market for us to um, send uh, avocados to and, and hopefully improve the returns for the, the, our growers. How tough have things been the last two years for growers like yourself, uh, producers like yourself of avocados, huge glut in the market, uh, there's such a huge oversupply and the, the returns that you're really getting back from, from supermarkets, not that great, is it? No, the increased supply has definitely um, reduced the returns and in most cases the growers are getting returns below cost of production. So. It's been really tough and, and um, it can't continue on like this for too much longer. So uh, new markets like India will hopefully uh, relieve some of the pressure and, and help, help get those returns back to viable levels for our growers. So uh, Tolson's Avocados is, is just one side of the business that yourself and your family uh, operate. There's also Avarama, which is, which is a packing business. So you pack for a lot of other growers as well, right? Yeah, that's right. Avarama pack and packs and markets for 40 different uh, avocado growers. I guess you would have a really good idea then of how local industry has really been holding up throughout this, this time. Have you seen any exits from the industry from some of your customers? Yeah, out of those 40, we've maybe had six, six or seven leave the industry uh, in the last 12 to 24 months. The smaller growers, that, uh, it's just not viable for them anymore at, at these prices. Remarkable to think that only a few years ago there was a, a lot of producers that were trying to get their way into the avocado industry or into avocado growing from, from other primary production. Yeah, that's right. The prices were quite good a few years ago and uh, a lot of people were trying to get into the industry, but um, it takes a long time for the, the new crops to come into the system. So uh, we knew this was coming and there's a big supply here now and it's here to stay. Jake Binney, the manager of Avarama, the state's largest avocado packer. And as you heard there, welcome news for small, smaller scale producers of the fruit as well. Avocado farmer Penny Tideman from Comboyne on the mid-north coast says after a dismal year for prices, the future is indeed looking bright. This year it has been very tough because I think all of the eastern coast has had a lot of small avocados and Western Australia's got a huge crop and so they're bringing their avocados across and not much money for the little avocados here, unfortunately, yeah. Were you quite excited by this week's news that India has now given the go-ahead for an export market to be, to be opened up for Australia after the, the, they, they've obviously been doing the trials the last few months uh, from uh, up in Bundaberg? But now it's, it's been given the go-ahead for every region of Australia to, to export over to India. Yes, look, I think it's fabulous because um, although in, uh, avocados don't feature much in, Indi in Indian cuisine, uh, it will certainly uh, well, increase the demand for avocados there because it's a trendy, trendy food. And I think it'll be terrific because it means Western Australia will concentrate more on the Indian market and it'll mean that we here in, as a small area in eastern states can add to the market here in, in the eastern states. 
States particularly and don't have to worry about Western Australia sending their fruit across the Nullarbor to here. Do you have any interest in yourself getting involved in exporting over to India? Well, we actually sell through a a packer in um, Stewart's Point and so we don't do the marketing ourselves or our our avocados and very few people up here on Combo and do that. Uh, But certainly they'll be looking at um, exporting to India and we're hoping China will open up a bit too, Japan. Um, So, yeah, look, the future is looking good. The Australian consumption is also increasing and I think Australians are becoming more aware of the health benefits of avocados and um, a couple of years ago the avocados were too expensive but the price has suddenly stabilised and if it remains like this I think we'll, we'll be having a good future. So it's, it's certainly become more accessible uh, thanks to, to those retail prices for, for most Australian consumers. How do you feel about the wholesale prices though? Well, this year the wholesale prices have been miserable, but um, what can we do? This is, I think it's been the case for all agricultural products, actually. I think, you know, if you're a cattle grower or a sheep grower, you you just have had a miserable year this year. Uh, yeah, look, I'm hoping that we'll get better retail prices in the coming year. Um, there's no doubt about that. Or better, better wholesale prices in the coming year. The retail prices seem to me to be pretty reasonable and we're going to get people eating more avocados as a result of this price. But uh, someone in between is making a lot of money and it's Certainly the avocado growers are not making the money at the moment. Would you uh, like to possibly speculate on who you think that, <laughs> that is that is making all the money? Some, some, some um, companies that got shonky awards this year, I would say. Right, okay. So we're not naming any names no, then, okay. No. <laughs> Read between the lines. Okay. How many avocados per year would you produce? Oh, my gosh. That's uh, hard to say. We have about 10,000 trees. And um, to be honest, I can't tell you exactly how many tonnes of avocados we've produced this year unless I looked in the books. And, and you're certainly moving them, but it's, it's just the price that you're getting back yes, for them. Yes, that's right. And uh, interestingly, I just checked how much of our avocado market is, is exported now, and it's just 14% of avocados from Australia are exported. So there's a huge opportunity there for exporting a lot more. And, um, yeah, I think it'll be good, very good for the industry. Comboyan avocado farmer Penny Tideman speaking there to Tina Quinn about uh, the news uh, of uh, bigger trade opportunities into India. It's 20 minutes past 12 on the country hour. We're still staying with trade issues, this time uh, global trade and dairy. And Van Veld is a Dutch dairy farmer. His family's uh, been uh, dairy farming for many generations. He's also president of Global Dairy Farmers as well. He's in Australia to meet with farmers and attend the research symposium at Camden this week and also talk to uh, university researchers about dairy as well. He says Australia and New Zealand and other highly productive dairy countries like his homeland, the Netherlands, are well placed. He says developed countries like ours can work together, share research and lead the way for others in some of the thorny issues that the industry faces. He says the high quality we produce and the strong demand for food into the future as the world population increases means he's very optimistic about dairy farming. Yeah, I think the number of, of dairy farmers, farmers in general, is, is 
decreasing enormously worldwide, we can cooperate much more uh, as farmers, as, as, as scientists, as, as, as industry mm-hmm. as well. And, and yeah, every country has his own uh, topics. But it, yeah, of course, I see the, the drought here and, 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 and it's, it is beginning of the summer. It, it, looking, yeah, it, it looks for me, as farmer, it looks me, to me very dry. Australia is a developed country. The Netherlands is a developed country. So, yeah, we have to take a position in, in all the climate and climate change and sustainability topics. And but to, we can work together as maybe as more. Yeah. You mentioned there about the global situation and, and number of dairy farmers decreasing. And you know, the, but the price and signals haven't really encouraged them to sort yeah, of stay the, the, with or be with dairy. Yeah. The, the, the fact is, yeah, we need more food in, in, in 2015, and it, it's not the case if it's 40 percent or 50, or it doesn't matter. We need more food, and Netherlands, EU is exporting, Australia is exporting. We, we play a role in, in, in coming years, yeah, in the future, yeah, and and we as developed countries, we have to take the lead in in in. in how to produce it sustainable in an accepted way and, 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 and it's, it's it's quite similar situation in, in Australia New Zealand and, and uh, European Union and in terms of uh, like is, is the is the wild card or is the, the uh, demand is it uh, really based around China is it really based around Asia and I know the the, the, the conversation with the EU between Australia and EU is not that flu- uh, don't goes that fluently, mm. and I, I know the Prime Minister from Australia. We haven't signed a trade deal. No. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. No, but we, uh, the Prime Minister is in in China right now, I think. Yeah, but we have we have, uh, we, we and and we we have uh, maybe sometimes we are competitors, but in general we are uh, colleagues and, and and we can support each other. Yeah. Pundits, some of the analysts are saying they're not thinking that the global uh, dairy price is looking too fl- the global dairy price is looking too flash. But because of drought and number of suppliers here in Australia, they think it's more positive for Australia. Um, what's your take on it? I, I think uh, food prices in general, yeah, they they will increase as well. Yeah, you see that last couple of weeks, last couple of months, it will increasing quite rapidly in now in, 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 in Europe. I'm, I'm a bit an older farmer and uh, we are farming for, for uh, so many generations but I have a new my, one of my sons will take over the farm in the future and I'm very happy and I'm very proud of it and, and, and uh, if we talk about Australia or, or the Netherlands uh, we need, need a perspective for the young farmers. The young farmers they they want a good income, and they want uh, they maybe they want another way of life that we had. And, and but I'm positive. I'm positive. Yeah, we've heard that from a number of um, young farmers in Australia. They don't they don't want to just work for no money anymore. They actually want to feel as though they're getting something back while they're actually working and not waiting for the, yeah, the yeah, future yeah. and yeah. just taking over yeah. ownership. No, I, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, and um, maybe the young farmers. Uh, yeah, we. I'm farming on a bit. I'm farming with my wife. We have a family farm. Uh, maybe on a little bit 
bit different way. We travel a lot and I support farms in Africa and in South America and we do it on the other, another, we do it a little bit on another way and it's not to say that's the, the right way or the wrong way. In general, in the Netherlands, the farming is a small world and, and, and if, 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 it's run, if it's very profitable then it's okay but now we had uh, last half year, last year it was a bit negative neg- negative sentiment and, and, and yeah, it has some pressure as well as for young farmers yeah. One of the other issues that's really biting a lot of farmers here in Australia in the last 20 years has been climate change have you yeah, seen yeah, the yeah, big yeah. changes in the Netherlands too? No, not, I think it's more extremely here than well, as well yeah I spoke, I spoke some farmers, some friends from uh, the Murray River and Riverina and, and, and uh, I visited them 12, 13 years ago and, and, and yeah, they were the only <laughs> existing dairy farm in that region. They had a new generation in the business, but it concerns maybe, yeah. And, and I travel a lot, I, I travel US, I, I, I've, I, I have some positions in the US and... and, and in the US, you have the extremely upscaling farms of 10,000, 20,000 cows. Yeah. I don't know if that's the right solution for Australia, for the Netherlands, absolutely not. But yeah, large scaling is maybe an option here, but yeah, I've been here a couple of days now. I, I, I feel a little bit there is a discussion about indoor and uh, the old fashioned grazing system. Uh, we, we have indoor system in the Netherlands, but we graze the cows as well. So there are some hybrid possibilities as well. Yeah, we don't have a lot of shedded cattle yeah. here in Australia. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> we but need the grass. We, we have a mixture at my farm. We have a mixture of outdoor, indoor. Yeah. So we can support each other. Anne Van Veld is a many-generation Dutch dairy farmer and he's also current president of Global Dairy Farmers. It's 27 minutes past 12 on the country hour. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. How's this for a story? You might want to comment on this. 0467922684. Cattle producer in the Northern Territory has survived a crocodile attack attack and he's done it by literally biting back. Colin Devereux from Twin Hill Station has been in the Royal Darwin Hospital for about a month after his lucky escape from the jaws of a 3.2 metre saltwater croc. He told Matt Brand that he was on his way to do some fencing when he noticed some fish swimming in a billabong that was drying up and he says he stepped into the mud as he normally does and suddenly this happened. Started walking, took two steps and the dirty bastard latched onto me. My right foot on the instep, sort of, as I threw a foot forward. And it was a big grab, solid. And um, he shook me straight away, shook me like a rag doll. And he took off in the water about three metres, pulled me. When he stopped pretty quick, I jumped in the air and kicked him in the ribs behind the front shoulder with my left foot, which was hard to do because he had all of my foot. So I got a short kick in. And you're in the water at this stage? Yeah, no, I'm in the water, mate. I'm out in the middle there. So um, he's, I kicked him in the ribs and I fell over. When I landed, my left leg went underneath me out the back. I was on my knee, leaning forward, just sort of half accidental, but my head with momentum went down towards his head, his head, and I managed to have a bite. 
but I was in an awkward position and I actually missed most of what I was biting at. It was all heavy head, heavy bone. And my teeth slipped up and I got all of the eyelids. Brought it by accident, I think. And his eyelids were pretty thick. I mean, it was like holding leather. And I jerked back on that and I had about a second go past and he let go. I just I just leapt away from him pretty awkwardly, but I rolled twice and took off, just stood up and took off with great steps up towards the billabong where my car was. He chased me, I think, three or four metres, maybe four, but then stopped. So I did have a good look over my shoulder, by golly. So anyhow, I roared up to the camp, climbed the stairs, wrapped a towel around, I got a bit of telecom rope that was on the veranda and tied it all up tight and managed to get the bleeding stopped straight away. And uh, my brother came out from Berry Springs and got me into Palmerston pretty quick. So that was about it, mate. That was it. Uh, how were you on arrival at the hospital? Was it losing a bit of blood? Uh, yeah, no, I, was, no I'd, I'd had all the block of blood stopped with the rope. It was stopped. There was nothing leaking out at all. So I did well there. And um, and I had it up in the dash of the Toyota all the way in, you know, up high. And it was pretty painful, but it was getting painful by the time I got there. It was, but it was pretty damaged. So I think it hit two toes. The, what do you call it? The um, tendons that attached to the two first toes. And uh, the skin died in the middle, so they had to pull all the skin off. They bloody put a few staples in right around it, try to keep it all hanging right. And then they, um, oh, some 14 days later, it took that long. They had mud in it and that. They had to clear all the mud out because of the bad bacteria from the Billabong water itself. Goose shit, duck shit, and crocodile teeth. Crocodile shit and crocodile teeth marks are going to be my bacteria around it. So you got your leg? You got your five toes? Yeah, I have, mate. I'm sitting here with my foot up, and I'm, um, <laughs> I'm bending my toes, and they reckon they might let me out. Have another look at it tomorrow, and they might let me out tomorrow. I had someone call me and say, you've got to speak to Colin Devereaux. Got attacked by a croc and bit the thing back. Well, I had no choice. Yeah. Had no choice, and it all happened, like I said, in about eight seconds I worked it out. wasn't long, but just the way things rolled. If he had to bit me somewhere else, it would have been different, I think. But he, was, he ended up being 11 foot long, and he was really in his prime. He was fat as a fool. He won't be doing it again. <laughs> what an incredible story, that one. Being a, the cattle producer attacked by a crocodile, and he bit it on the eyelid, and, he, uh, and the crocodile let him go. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, and he uh, was as fat as a what? He was as fat as a fool. Oh, fat as a fool! <laughs> <laughs> My uncle used to say it all the yeah, time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, so incredible. <laughs> you might uh, you might have some. You might want to regale us with some of your stories. You can send us a text zero four six seven nine double two six eight four is a number to text us here at the country. Only in the Northern Territory, though, eh? Anyway, well, uh, yeah, incredible story, mm, amazing. So, um, he's got all his fingers and toes. Oh, that's so good. So he's all right. Yeah, he's all right. Yeah. He's done all right. Yep. I went and saw the Gators in New Orleans. Oh, boat, right. The guy driving the boat was <laughs> missing a few, <laughs> a few digits. <laughs> he didn't fare as well as no, our. He was our, still as our coal still powering along. <laughs> That's right, that's right, yes. Mm. A bit, uh, quite hypnotic, those mm. alligators, yes. Yeah. All right, oh, uh, I wasn't impressed, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, think, no, they're pretty scary. Yeah. yeah. And they go pretty quick, too, Yeah, over a short distance. Oh, I think it was like, they all seemed to be asleep. Oh, yeah, okay. They just woken. Right. So there wasn't much, that's wasn't why you much went, activity. That's why you weren't impressed. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> mind you, it was not a zoologist. Should have taken a, few, yeah. taken a few chickens with you or something. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, what's happening All in the right. news? All uh, right, parliamentary inquiry uh, going to be held into yesterday's Optus outage. Uh, going to be looking at compensation, obviously, uh, for individuals and businesses and steps being taken to prevent future outages. Uh, it may have the power to compel witnesses uh, from Optus uh, to appear before it. Uh, there's an incident up in the state's north where police searching up to four men after a number of reported shootings. Uh, a man's body has been found on the side of Fernbank Creek Road at Port Macquarie, uh, with police investigating whether it's linked to the shootings. Mo- um, a motorist suffered a bullet graze during one of the incidents, and a police car was also shot at from a black dual-cab ute uh, between Kempsey and Taree between 1 and 5.30 this morning. Now, that ute has been found in Port Macquarie, Uh, but they are now searching for the occupants. Uh, Overseas, Israel says uh, 50,000 Palestinians have now fled Gaza City after its military opened the main road to southern Gaza. Uh, That comes as the head of the UN says the number of civilians killed in Gaza shows there is something uh, clearly wrong with the military operation with more than 10,500 having been killed since the war began. 1,400 people killed in Israel after those uh, terrorist attacks. Uh, The Prime Minister has been at the Pacific Islands Forum where he's uh, rejected a push from uh, some Pacific leaders to review the Treaty of Rarotonga. It's pretty fun you haven't heard from a while, but some Pacific countries have suggested uh, the nuclear-free zone treaty be reviewed in the wake of Japan discharging... Uh, treated wastewater from its uh, Fukushima plant, uh, but Anthony Albanese says the document uh, doesn't need changing. And uh, in sport, game two of State of Origin in uh, Melbourne this year. Um, so that'll be the ninth time ninth time they've uh, faced off on Victorian soil, which puts sort of both teams at a disadvantage, really. Well, uh, they, and um, and they but they get a huge crowd. Oh, massive crowd! Massive yeah. crowd! Yeah. Quite. Oh, they love their league down in Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> Once a year. <laughs> Doesn't everyone? Everyone. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for that. That's, that's uh, yes, the croc. Just can't get over that crocodile no. story. Yeah, incredible. Mm, the eye. <laughs> Bit him on the eye. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to remember that. That's right. Yeah, that's a tip. Yeah. Or don't get in the water. Or don't get in the water. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for that, Adam. It's 25 minutes to one. Adam will be back at one o'clock. Neil Fraser's at the Bureau. Hey, hey, um, Crocodiles on the golf course, alligators. You see them occasionally in the United States, Neil. Yes, yeah. Not you haven't my seen golf any. Course, no, <laughs> no. no <laughs> not at your you golf do. courses. No, you'd abandon the ball if it was near one. You so, even yeah. you see them sometimes, even in tournament play. It's quite incredible. Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 This, yeah. <laughs> Bizarre. Anyway, yeah. What's happening with the weather details? Uh, we're yes. getting a bit of rain, are we? Is yeah, that what's happening? Quite unstable. So mm. there's lots of there's. We've had thunderstorms uh, banging away uh, all through the morning and through the central west area, getting to the Blue Mountains area as well. goes right out to the central west plains, some parts, but it has contracted north of the border, so there's no activity happening now down in the south of the state. Also, another area of thunderstorms up around the northern tablelands at the moment, so that's going to expand this afternoon and potentially some severe thunderstorms mixed in with it. So looks like rain's the main, main uh, focus with uh, very slow-moving thunderstorms, so some areas will cop a bit more than others, but on average, probably another 10 to 20 millimetres across a fair area of the central west there, and uh, further in the northwest of the area, possibly some damaging wind and large hail as well, but the main focus is on rainfall. Now, that area shifts northeast tomorrow, so anywhere north from the Illawarra up 
right up to the border and out to the northwest slopes and plains is potentially more showers and thunderstorms and could be severe as well. But after that, it all tapers off. Not completely clear for the weekend. Still the threat of the odd shower or thunderstorm here and there, mainly in the west and the south on uh, Saturday and more broadly on Sunday, but generally much less activity than we getting the last day or so. Another system coming in later next week. So it looks like from Tuesday, or really Wednesday onwards, it starts to build up again. So another trough developing and looks like coast ranges and western slopes could have some more activity happening on Wednesday and Thursday before it contracts further north again. So all in all, a fairly unsettled pattern for some areas. We've had some reasonable rainfall around the inland parts already. I think the highest I saw was 40-odd millimetres down the southwest there. And Albury, for instance, copped uh, quite a, a big drop from thunderstorms in the early hours of the morning. Mm, OK, because we had a text from Dave in uh, Trundley was saying he only got four millimetres. He got two on Saturday. Uh, and his total for October in general was just 20 millimetres. So obviously yeah. it didn't, didn't rain in Trundle. <laughs> no, it's a bit yeah, hit and miss. That's the trouble with, with thunderstorms. Uh, you can see you know, storms down the road or whatever, and they don't quite make it to you. So it is, it's not like widespread rainfall, but generally yeah, most areas should get something with this system over the next couple of days. And, as and we have seen a bit out in, the, out in the far west already, so the pastoralists would be happy with that if they did get yeah, some. Yeah, that's right, mm, yeah. To help uh, the grass grow, warmer weather as well too. That's right, yeah. Mm. It doesn't take long for the grass to grow, does it? Mm. But uh, even since nine, uh, uh, ran up in the Clarence area, uh, Meldrum's had 28 millimetres, but generally falls of the order of five to ten around the uh, southwest and the central west. But as I said, it's shifted further north now. Okay, well, it sounds like it has uh, rained a bit on the fire ground, which is useful too, which is definitely what they need yes. there at the moment oh, too. Oh, certainly, mm. yeah. It'll be quite, quite wet up there for the next few days. And then the next system, as I said, coming next week will add to that. So hopefully it does control those fires that are mm. still burning up through there. Get them under control or maybe put them out. Mm. Although well, that's someone right. that's the hope. Also, someone has texted in and said that, that uh, they didn't get too much by the sound of things. They got El Nino rain. So oh, right. It's a different variety. <laughs> might, <yeah>. might have <laughs> missed out, I'd say, by the sound yeah, of that. Yeah, you've got to watch out for that. That's <laughs> a, it's quite a strange sort of rain, yes. <laughs> like, like alligators on the golf course. It goes the other way. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. All right. Thanks for that, Neil. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Neil Fraser at the Bureau. It's uh, 29 minutes to one. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Jim was pretty happy, though. He got 47 millimetres at his property at uh, Ladysmith and uh, a bit of uh, interest in the crocodile story. Someone's texted in saying we should uh, we should dub Cole the new crocodile Dundee. So there you go. There you go. I knew, I knew someone had texted in on the crocodile story. You were listening to the Country Hour. It's coming up to 20 minutes to one. Well, the NFF, New South Wales Farmers uh, and Ag Force in Queensland and also New South Wales Irrigators Council, they're today protesting the proposed changes to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and uh, the issue of water management and also the community impact of water buybacks and jobs and a whole range of issues and impacts on the community as well from any proposed buybacks. According to analysis by the New South Wales Irrigators Council today, schools across the lower basin have been adversely affected by previous water buybacks. New South Wales Irrigators Council CEO Claire Miller is uh, talking about their concerns with Sally Bryant. 
What we know from Murray-Darling Basin Authority analysis is that more than 3,200 full-time equivalent jobs have been lost across communities in the Southern Basin. And we've also sort of heard rumbles with teachers and principals talking about falling enrolment. So we took a look at that, and what we found uh, looking at the data was that on average an entire high school class worth of students has been lost in every New South Wales, Southern Murray, Darling Basin region following those mass water buybacks a decade ago that have those more than 3,200 jobs attributed directly to them. And what was, I suppose, really stood out was the decline in Albury, Deniliquin and Griffith regions was comparable to the loss of two classes of students. That is, that is pretty substantial. Every job lost and mean that a family leaves town and schools lose students. And as one principal said, you lose one family, that's three kids. It could drop you a class or a teacher. So these numbers are critical. If you look at the need for something to be done to ensure the viability of the environment, how would you like to see the Environment Minister meet the environmental outcomes, if not through buybacks? Well, this is, I guess, what's really frustrating here. Is it doesn't have to be these, this way. Buybacks are actually not going to help the environment at this point. But now 72% of the inflows in the basin stay in the rivers and on the floodplains, and we've seen that, the benefits of that. Now, the government did call for ideas on how to do this without causing further hardship for communities. She has all those options on her table, and she's decided to simply ignore them and go for this sledgehammer approach. So what is the Irrigators Council suggesting should be the next step? We're suggesting that the government should abandon doing further buybacks and fully examine all of these other options. They include things like um, changes in river operations, which would free up more water for the environment, for discretionary use for the environment, more partnerships with landowners and irrigation um, companies to get the water out onto the floodplains and get around issues with constraints. There are many, many options, and the Minister has them on her table. We've got legal advice, which is very clear on her bill. It's worded in such a way it does not allow for anything other than buybacks in one form or another. Has the Irrigators Council had the opportunity to sit down face-to-face with the Minister and have this sort of frank discussion? She hasn't met with us we know that other groups, the NSF and the National Irrigators Council and others have sat down with her and been through this and she has her ears painted on. New South Wales Irrigators Council CEO Claire Miller. It's uh, coming up to 17 to 1. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour. ABC Radio, New South Wales. The impact of bushfires in the summer of 2019-2020 is still being felt around the countryside as communities continue to recover from the devastation. At Tumbarumba in the Snowy Valley, uh, like so many other communities, it's still coming to terms with what was lost, with the fear and the stress and the grief that the fires let loose on their residents. Part of that process has been the collation of residents' stories of their personal experiences. Louise Halsey is the chairman of the Community Foundation for the Tumut Region and Zita Denman is the editor of a book, Tumbarumba Under Siege, which is compiled by the Tumbarumba Writers Group and set to be released next Thursday. Both of them are talking here to Sally Bryant. I think it's quite extraordinary in that 
the Tumbarumba Writers Group that was led by um, Grace McEachern put the call out, in fact, and contacted all those who've contributed mm. uh, together with photos. It's become quite a historical document for Tumbarumba. That, that's my uh, take on it. Mm. Um, well, there you two things. One, you said a remarkable book. Mm. The other person involved is... Angela Pierce, who did the design work, and I've worked with her before, and she's very good, and she's she's e- easy to work with, she's professional to work with, she knows mm. what she's doing, and she's got a wonderful eye for layout. Because I'm not a tumba-rumba person, I was able to get just that one level back yes. and look at what came in dispassionately, and I didn't make the decision. Well, I made the decision in my working thing mm. that I was going to let the people speak for themselves. It's I'm an historian by trade, trade and training, and I wasn't going to impose the Zeta Denim vision of history on anybody. Full stops, commas, spelling, capital letters, standardisation, but the stories were going to speak for themselves. And they more than do that. It is There are so many stories through here that I just went through going, I did not know that. I did not know that. The, the things that some people did, feeding people, looking after people, just extraordinary. It's a book of gratitude. Yes. Just about everybody. I think every story, mm. even though there's criticism, and that's how they felt, and it's rightly so, yeah. um, in amongst all that, there's, there's gratitude, and I think that's phenomenal. They had the generosity, all those writers, mm. had the generosity of spirit to say thanks. And do you know, I read something the other day which really struck home to me and they said that the happiest people are not necessarily the people who have the most. They're the people who feel the most gratitude for what they have. Don't you think that that is really wise? Yeah. I had a man out at our place the other day about something completely different Mm. and he did a good job for me and, and I said, you know, how much? And he said, and I said, well, what about a slab of beer? And he said, no, he said, my father told me that the only things you can take to heaven are the things you give away. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> that's beautiful. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and I thought, okay. And then he said, sorry for talking religion. <laughs> I'm stealing that. Consider that stolen. Thank you, (laughs) Well, I'll tell him. (laughs) It is hard, isn't it? Because we've, as broadcasters and as journalists, we we have trodden that line between reflecting back to the community, talking to the community about the recovery process, getting people to tell their stories, but also not wanting to be ham-fisted about it and getting in people's faces because everyone does this recovery at their own time, at their own pace and in their own way. Yeah, it's it's tricky for them too because we've been told, working with mental health people as mm. we have, that three to five years is the, the hard time and it's even harder now with part of Australia a light up north. And uh, somebody came back from Cabago the other day who was working down there and they said people are very nervous. Yes. The book's not going to help some people. You no. Know, well, it'll help, but it might be very hard. It could be triggering stuff. Yeah, and I think that um, I really admire 
the way Zita and Angela mm. took it on because reading it was pretty harrowing. Oh, yeah. And Angela um, was in were, was in the fires. Yeah, her husband had a flashover. And they were they were close to the start of the Duns Road. <laughs> I reckon it's a document for the future. Yes, mm. it's the beginning section of that, as you mm. probably notice, is the nineteen fifty two flight. Absolutely, and they're the stories being told by the old blokes who yep. were youngsters mm-hmm. at the time of the nineteen fifty two. The rest of the book is being told by everybody who was immediately. There, the people telling the rest of the book mm. were were there, and I think in fifty years' time, sixty years' time, it'll be an even more valuable book than it is now. Images, and stories, and practices, and what worked and what didn't work. Exactly, and and even equipment sort of things. I'm, I'm very proud of the glossary. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, um, at the launch, yes, we have a collection of other books that have been written about the fires. Mm-hmm. And I think there's the opportunity for somebody to do a PhD. Wow, yes. On all these stories. Yeah. Now, they're just the ones we know about. Louise Halsey, who's chairman of the uh, Com- Community Foundation for the Tumut Region, and Zeta Demon, who's an historian and editor of that book, which is called Tumbarumba Under Siege. It'll be... Uh, released next Thursday. It's 10 to 1. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for The World Today. Optus under fire. Compensation demands growing and investigations underway after the worst network outage in Australian history. More Palestinians forced to flee their homes amid intense fighting in northern Gaza. The UN saying up to 15,000 people a day are being displaced. And more than 170 South Australian public schools shut down as teachers fight for better pay and conditions. And on the country hour, the union representing the Federal Department of Agriculture workers says the meat industry will benefit long term from this week's industrial action. Yesterday, on-plant vets and meat inspectors that are members of the community and public sector union stopped work for one hour at the end of their shift in a bid to get a better pay offer. The Australian Meat Industry Council criticised the action, saying it's collateral damage in negotiations and it will stop the abattoirs and processes. CPSU National Secretary uh, Melissa Donnelly says better pay and conditions will help address the worker shortages. Well, we've been in negotiations with the federal government since the beginning of the year. Uh, We don't come to this industrial action lightly. We come to it after months and months of negotiations. And our members who work for the department in in abattoirs and in the meat industry want a fair deal on pay. Uh, We all know there are really significant cost of living pressures and employees working for the Department of Agriculture are the same. And we think if the meat industry has concerns about the industrial action, they should direct those to the government and the department. Do you think it's fair that their operations are impacted by these uh, one-hour strikes? I think the reality is the pay rates and the conditions that are on offer uh, for Department of Agriculture workers working in abattoirs already have the potential um, to impact operations. We know that the department is nearly permanently advertising these roles uh, because at the pay rate and the conditions that are on offer right now, they're struggling to fill them. We don't want a long-term problem. We want a solution here that provides a long-term solution for the industry and these workers. And that means being more attractive in, in terms of their pay conditions so they can attract and retain employees. 
Do you think that message is getting through by taking this kind of industrial action? I mean, AMIC says that a one-hour strike delays operations for six hours. It could take days to get through a backlog of animals that poses animal welfare issues. Do you think that by taking this action, the federal government is feeling that impact and it will force them to come to the table to negotiate further? I think industrial action is always one of those options that workers don't come to lightly. And it is absolutely the case um, in this circumstance as well that our members have not come to this lightly. They've come to it after months and months of negotiations. And there are a range of pay and allowance issues, allowance issues specific for these workers that uh, that, uh, are not yet resolved. So we would be hopeful, as I'm sure industry will be hopeful, that the government does come to the party and we can resolve this as quickly as possible because it's in the long-term interests of the industry industry, that we have a solution that means that uh, we can attract and retain these workers for the long term. Do you have other action that is an option? Amic was saying that why can't these negotiations be done in another way without taking a third party industry hostage? Well, we we have absolutely um, been undertaking these negotiations in other ways. We have been doing, uh, been engaged in nearly weekly negotiations since March. So we're not racing to industrial action. Uh, We have come to this position and our members have come to this position thoughtfully and after a long uh, period of negotiations. So we continue um, to work hard to make sure there's a resolution here. uh, But that involves an outcome that delivers for these workers, both in terms of pay and allowances. Do you think the meat industry should have been consulted uh, before this strike action was set to take place? Well, we go through, um, under the industrial laws that apply, go through quite extensive notifications and other processes uh, before industrial action is even possible. So this has been something that the department has been aware of for many weeks um, and aware of these specific stoppages for a number of days. So I think that's probably most appropriately a question for the department. Did the majority of workers actually support the federal government's last offer, which was of an 11.2% pay increase over three years? We have, uh, I guess, two tiers of negotiations going on. Uh, There was a slight support, 51.8% support, for what we've negotiated across the whole of the APS, which was reflected in a range of important conditions outcomes that we've we've negotiated, the unions negotiated, uh, but pay was still a disappointing matter um, across the sector. Uh, More specifically, um, not subject to those negotiations, is a range of allowance issues that are still at play in negotiations directly with the department that affect this group of workers specifically. CPSU National Secretary Melissa Donnelly speaking to Lydia Burton uh, in a statement to the ABC. A spokesperson for the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries says it's actively engaging in good faith negotiations and working closely with key stakeholders of the meat industry and individual export meat establishments to minimise the impact of the protected industrial action. First up, Wagga Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. 40,000 lambs and 14,000 sheep sold to a small group of domestic and export processors. Quality was fair to very good in places. However, it was noticeable that the yarding lacked weight, falling in mostly to two categories, those in store condition and those weighing between 20 to 26 kilo. Competition was weaker because southern markets have commenced their selling season and as a result, 
prices decline five to ten dollars. Twenty to twenty-four kilo, eighty-two dollars to one hundred and eighteen, averaging four hundred and seventy-five cents a kilogram carcass weight. Twenty-four to twenty-six, one ten to one thirty-four. 26 to 30, 134 to 145, averaging 473 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Store lambs with weight and frame, $50 to 71. Lambs to feed on, topped at 115. And light lambs to the processors, $41 to 86. Reno lambs, $32 to 70. And hoggets, $45 to $70. With the sheep yet to be sold, Leon Ducks, MLA. To Dubbo Cattle. Despite some handy falls of rain, numbers are up a little for a yarding of 3,510. It was a mixed yarding with a good selection of young cattle to suit the feeders and processors, along with fair numbers of well-finished ground steers and heifers and cows. There were also large numbers of weaners yarded. Young cattle of the trade were up to 15 cents dearer, with prime vealers selling to 208. Prime yearlings sold from 185 to 235. Feeder steers and heifers were 20 cents dearer and more in places, with the feeder steers selling from 180 to 252. Feeder heifers sold from 158 to 228. Young cattle of the restockers were up to 50 cents dearer, with the young steers selling to 300 cents and the young heifers 232. Ground steers were 7 to 15 cents dearer, while the ground heifers were firm. Prime ground steers sold from 180 to 229, while the prime ground heifers sold to 207. Cows were 7 to 11 cents dearer with the 2 and 3 scores selling from 112 to 176. Prime heavyweight cows sold from 162 to 209 to average 186. Heavy bulls sold to 204. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. To Yas Cattle now. Numbers lifted this sale with agents yarding 671 head. Quality was mixed with a handy run of well-bred feeder cattle on offer along with the secondary types. The usual buyers are present competing in a fairly similar market. Bealer steers and heifers to restockers sold from 180 to 300 cents a kilo. Yearling steers to feed sold from 144 to 200 cents, while middleweight heifers to feed received from 120 to 163. Heavy grown steers to processors sold from 180 to 195, with grown heifers ranging from 148 to 200 cents. An extra cow buyer saw prices jump, with heavy two score selling from 154 to 176. Pre-score receiving from 162 to 200 cents a kilo. This has been Crystal Ridley at Yas SELX for MLA. And Armadale Cattle. Good afternoon. A much smaller penning on the back of a rain event and a reasonable forecast going forward. Just 330 head penned. Quality was very mixed as was conditioned. A full field of processes, extra competition on the export cattle. Market trends dearer throughout, some quality related change, while the low numbers also played a role. The two weeks between sales bringing out some significant price improvement. Lightweight yielding steers to restockers sold from 198 to 284 cents a kilo, with the medium and heavyweights one. 185 to 214. Yielding heifers under 330 kilos, 188 to 236 cents. Well finished ground heifers soft from 178 to 236. A very strong cow market saw the medium weight two and three scores, 118 to 188 cents, while the heavy three and four scores soft from 164 to 204 cents. The best heavy bull made 181 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Armadale. And you're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour. We're heading up to news time and one o'clock.